This is the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the beloved of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grief for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day, for the Lord is is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. 
They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is our God? Thank you very much, Lynn. It's a long passage, not an easy one to read and not an easy one to hear, particularly if we believe it. Uh, So I'm going to pray for us uh, as we come to look at that passage together. Heavenly Father, please would you continue to speak through these words. Please would you help us as we think about what it is you're saying to us. Would you help us to apply those things into our lives? And would you help us to put our trust in you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes there is an unusual amount of bad news, isn't there? Whether that's sort of something horrendous has happened and uh, a country declares a a state of national emergency. COVID was a bit like that, wasn't it? Everything's suddenly different. Actually, the last time the UK declared a state of emergency was actually 1974. And so you can uh, have, um, everyone's now going, what happened in 1974? That's uh, one to think about later. But thankfully, that's not us right now, is it? In this country, we're not in a current state of emergency. But at times, it comes close to that, doesn't it? Whether it's wars or riots or environmental worries or the cost of living crisis or all those kinds of things that just feel like big bad things are happening in the world. And that's just on a national level in our personal lives as well. We face all sorts of tragedies, don't we? Whether that's losing a job or or poor health or relationships breaking down. And those often hit us much harder than stuff that's international uh, incidents. 
Those are often the things that make us realise something really is wrong with the world, the world we live in. That's always true. Something is always wrong with the world. But when it comes a little bit closer to home, we feel it, don't we? We really feel that something has gone dreadfully wrong. Well, the book of Joel is written for times like that, for times when disaster strikes. It was written after, possibly even during, a national disaster to help us make sense of it. Chapter 1, verse 1 says that it is the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Now, we don't know who Joel was or his dad either. We don't know exactly when this was written either. But actually, in a way, that doesn't matter because it makes its message all the more timeless. And actually, this is how to react when disaster strikes. And we can't say, well, the disaster I'm in is a different kind of... Well, because we don't know loads about what actually had happened and when it was. We can apply this to us. Because this isn't just Joel's ideas. This isn't his hot take on the big issues of the day. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's message about a crisis. So let's be ready to, to learn about that. So over the next three weeks, uh, we're going to be getting to grips with, in a sense, not Joel. This isn't Joel's ideas. It's certainly not getting to grips with my ideas, but with God's word about how we should respond when disaster strikes. Chapter 1 outlines the terrible situation that Judah was facing. And that is that the day of the locust has come. The day of the locust has come. It sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? The day of the locust. And it would have been absolutely terrifying. What has happened to them at that time is unprecedented. We heard a lot about things being unprecedented uh, during COVID. You sort of think, how many things can be unprecedented? But this really is, verse 2 and 3, it, it talks about, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell their children. Let their children tell the next generation. What's happening is historic stuff. They're going to be teaching this in school. They're going to tell their grandchildren about it. A bit like we did last week with Remembrance Sunday. As a kind of, you know, We must not forget those horrors. We mustn't forget this terrible disaster. It's sort of built up quite a lot. What has actually happened to them? Well, we're told in verse 4, what the locust swarm has left... The great locusts have eaten. What the great locust has left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. The problem is that the land has been overtaken by a swarm of insects. The day of the locust has come. Now, we're very fortunate not to be troubled uh, by locusts very much in this country. We do have grasshoppers, though, which are very similar. You know, the sort of buzzing, chirping noise you hear in the summer. It's really a loud noise from something very, very small. They're normally solitary little things, and they're pretty harmless. They chew a little bit, but, that, but that's it. Under certain climactic conditions, though, they transform into monsters. They change colour. From green, you think a nice green grasshopper, to black and yellow, which is normally a danger sign, isn't it? Instead of being solitary, they start to form in groups. Forming in groups, they start to breed uncontrollably. So when they're in full locust mode, a female laying eggs today, within five months, could have 18 million living descendants. A single female 
laying eggs today, in five months we'll have 18 million living descendants. The swarms get massive. You can cover hundreds of square miles with about 120 million locusts per square mile. This is a serious spread. It happens very, very quickly. In the first half of 2020, the UN had to eradicate over 400 billion locusts just in East Africa to try and stop a plague. And there was still a bit of a plague despite that. When they descend on an area, it brings complete destruction. The official guidelines call them the world's most devastating pest. I was joking with the kids at the weekend. They have a rival uh, to that title of world's biggest. But their, their appetite is absolutely incredible. Uh, a small swarm the size of Paris, and bear in mind if it was the size of Paris, that would be a small swarm, that would eat the same amount of food in one day as the entire population of France. But they stay for months, and they come in wave after wave, leaving nothing behind. In verse 4, isn't it? If one lot doesn't gobble it up, the next lot will. There was a, um, an invasion of locusts in California a few years ago. The, the agricultural report from that uh, said, what they don't eat, they cut off for entertainment. They will just chop it down anyway. And if you look through this chapter, the words used to describe them having been there, laid waste, ruined, stripped, cut off, dried up, destroyed, withered, shriveled, devoured. That's what's happened here. This is a nation that's been reduced to dust. Just think about those heart-wrenching appeals that you see on TV of people starving, people left with nothing. And part of it as well is, is the, it is non-stop. The noise of the locusts is supposed to be almost deafening because they're each one of them, if you think about the noise of one little one, each one of them whirring its wings, clicking its legs, crunching its jaws. Apparently it, being there, it's like standing next to a jet engine. And then when they die, their bodies cover the land and they rot and they stink and they spread disease. So when a, a swarm of locusts come, it, it ruins everything and it lasts for many years, the impact of it. Now nowadays we've got satellites, we can try and monitor them. There are whole groups that monitor them, checking they're not growing too fast, not getting too quick. And as soon as they look like they are, planes come in with pesticides to kill them. But even today, if a swarm has started, there is pretty much nothing you can do. And you think what it would have been like for them then. This is disaster. This is absolute disaster. The day of the locust has come. And the prophet Joel calls various groups to respond, different people. So he starts off with the drunkards, verse 5. Seems a strange group to begin with, but he starts with them in verse 5. He says, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. He's talking to people who would usually either be merry or sleeping it off. And he tells them to wake up and weep because the bottle that they love has been knocked out of their hands, snatched away from their lips because the locusts have laid waste the vineyards, verse 7. There is no more wine. There is no more celebrating. The people who live for the moment, who drown their sorrows, they've got the one thing that they rely on taken away from them. It is time to wake up. And disaster does that, doesn't it? 
It strips away all of our distractions. It takes away life's pleasures. And so we're left with nothing to lean on but God. And that is what Joel is calling them to do here. To wake up. The locusts, they come in like an army. Verse 7 says it's, it's an invasion. An invasion of wild beasts. They chew everything up. They spit it out. And so the people wail. Verse 8 has a horrible image. A bride on her wedding day. This is the happiest day of her life. And instead of the beautiful dress, she's wearing sackcloth. She's in mourning for her fiancé who's died. Mourning for the life they'll never live. This is what it's like for the people of Joel's day. Can you imagine that? Seasons of joy turn to deepest grief. Joel then addresses the workers. So in verse 11, despair you farmers, wail you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Harvest is supposed to be a time of plenty, isn't it? We have a harvest festival not very long ago and we weren't there reading this passage, were we? We're remembering the times when hopes come true, all the hard work is paid off. Isn't it good? Hasn't God been good to us? But they couldn't say that that year because all the trees, all the plants are ruined. And at the end of verse 12, we're told, surely the people's joy is withered away. The locusts have taken away their happiness. I wonder if you have known times like that when some tragedy has come and taken away all of the joy. That is what it was like for them. In verse 16 it says, Has not the food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. There is no joy. There is no joy. There is no food. There is no fruit, no crops, no grain. That means no bread. Nothing for the animals to eat. So we've got no meat. We've got no milk. This is a famine. So if you can picture the, the supermarket shelves stripped bare, just rows and rows of empty shelves, empty cupboards at home, empty fridges, empty freezers, empty bellies, the olive oil failing, that means no baking, no cooking, no washing, no lighting. Their whole way of life is destroyed. We should be so thankful, shouldn't we, for just the simplest, smallest things that we have. But the day of the locust has taken far more from them than just their comfort. It's robbed them of their relationship with the Lord. Well, how does that work? Well, have a look in verse 9. It says there that grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. So at that time, the Lord dwelt in the temple. That is where you had to go to meet with him and the priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people not just sacrifices to deal with our sin but also fellowship offerings and thanksgiving offerings so twice a day offering grain offering wine burning it to this deliberately delicious smell coming all the time a pleasing aroma to the Lord as a sign of their fellowship with him but when you don't have the grain and you don't have the grapes and you don't have any of that there is nothing to offer the day-to-day -day work of the temple stops. So to all intents and purposes, their relationship with God, as it was then, is suspended. 
And so Joel addresses the priests. He tells them to weep in verse 13, to swap their elaborate robes for sackcloth as they mourn the death of a nation, mourn the death of their fellowship with God. The day of the locust has come and it is awful. But how could it happen? Why was it happening? Well, we need to remember who this was happening to. This is not just sort of an agricultural report from a, a random country. This is happening to God's Old Testament people living in the land of Judah. The Lord had given them this particular land to live in. And as long as they followed him, as long as they kept his ways, the land would be blessed. They're told that they would have peace and security and prosperity and abundance. But if they deserted him, if they went off with other gods, well, instead of blessing, there would be disaster. And God made this all very clear before they entered the land. Effectively, he said, have you read the whole contract before you sign on the line? And they say, yes, that sounds great. Deuteronomy 28, maybe read that later. It outlines the promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And it says things like this. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Think in that time when everything's going well, don't walk away from God. Because instead of protecting them, God had promised to treat them the same way he treated the Egyptians when he led them out by sending plagues of locusts and things like that. And so when that happened to them, they should say, okay, this is that. This is that. This is a, a day of judgment, the day of the locust. Now in the Old Covenant, you could draw a straight line between a disaster that was happening and particular sins that deserved it. Not every time, but, but very often. That's how it was spelt out. For us today, that is not the case. God's people now are not a nation in a particular land. The church is all believers spread across the world. And we're not promised material blessings like this, this side of the new creation. So when hard times come to us, we've got to remember there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The day of the locust is not coming in as, uh, as a judgment on us in that sense. So we can't draw that straight line between a bad thing happens and a bad thing we must have done. That's not how it works for Christians. But at the same time, all catastrophes, all tragedies are connected to sin in some way. It is because of sin coming in to ruin the world that awful things like this happen because we are in a world that is under a curse. Without sin, there wouldn't be any death, there wouldn't be any disaster. Every time a bad thing happens, it screams at us, something is broken, deeply broken with the world. This is not how it's supposed to be. And that is because of sin. Rebellion against God. That is why in that day back then and, and on so many days now, the day of the locust has come. Now you might think as we sort of try and get our heads into how bad it must have been for them, for Joel and for those people, you might think, well, it can't possibly get any worse. Well, you'd be wrong. 
Because Joel has a message from God that the worst is yet to come. Because the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. If you thought the locusts were bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Chapter 1, verse 15, turns up the heat. It says, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. So he's saying, alas for today, alas for now. Weep and wail and mourn and grieve about the locusts now. Why? Because another day is coming. Something much worse is on the way. Something Joel calls the day of the Lord. However awful this day is, the next one is going to be worse. The day of the Lord is something the prophets talked about a lot. It was a day when God would finally be seen. He would be vindicated. Everybody would acknowledge he is the Lord. He would stand as judge. He's going to put the world to rights. And so the day of the Lord was something to really look forward to. If you are on the Lord's side, that is the day when you are vindicated, when you're saved, when your trust in him is shown to have been well placed. And so I suppose the shock in Joel's message is that his hearers are supposed to be terrified at the prospect of the day of the Lord. For them, them it is going to be dreadful. It is not going to come as salvation. No, it says it will come like destruction from the Almighty. So we can't normally draw a straight line between particular sins and the locusts that have come necessarily. But you can with this. The day of the Lord will come as judgment for sin. Chapter 2 goes through to describe it in more detail. Verse 1 says about basically setting off the warning sirens. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Be warned. It is near and it is getting nearer. Verse 2 describes it like an army marching in to take the land, spreading like an inferno in verse 3. It says, before them a flame, a fire devours and behind them flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. Just, just picture a, a beautiful landscape. Maybe even try, if you can, to picture paradise like it was in Eden. That is what it's like where they haven't been yet. But behind them, once they've been and gone, it is a burnt out shell. No wonder it's a day of terror. Verse 6 says, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. If you've seen the, the Lord of the Rings films, picture the, the Battle of Helm's Deep as you see just legions of orcs and enemies as far as the eye can see. They're looking over the walls and it just keeps going and going and going, each one of them with a flaming torch and a sword. And they clamber up the fortress walls. Verse 7 to 9, if you read it, it is, it is a terrible thing to imagine. It says, They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. This is a terrible, terrible thing. An unstoppable force who have been given the order to flatten everything. The day of the Lord is coming. 
And it's a day of cosmic upheaval. Read verse 10. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. A dark day in every sense of the word. This is the end of the world. And as we read on, our, our sneaking suspicion, our lurking fear is shown to be correct. Who is the commanding officer of this terrible army? It is God. Verse 11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Nobody can endure it. Because nobody can hope to beat God in battle. And yet, every time we sin, that is what we're trying to do. Every time we sin, we are setting ourselves up as rebels against him, as rivals to him. Now, we're going to decide. We rule. We can do what we think is best. We are our own captain and king and judge and God. And the day of the Lord is the day when that pretending will stop. When God will come to judge to reign and we're given a glimpse here of that dreadful day a day that jesus himself warned us about we looked at this just a couple of weeks ago didn't we in mark chapter 13 where jesus spoke about the sun and moon and stars no longer shining when he comes again as king in fact the new testament gives it a new name the day of the lord jesus so in case we're reading this going oh dear me old testament eh God, I'm so glad it's the New Testament. No, the day of the Lord Jesus will be like this. Joel is warning us of the great and terrible day when Jesus returns to destroy sin forever. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Be warned. Blow the trumpets. And the message of, of Joel is right there in chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, Alas for that day... For the day of the Lord is near. So whenever disaster strikes like it did for them with those locusts, it is right to cry. It is right, normal, to feel awful. But it should make us look ahead. And remember that worse is to come. Every locust, every war, every famine, every earthquake, every illness, every bereavement, every headline that is about a tragedy, every private sorrow should remind us the day of the Lord is coming. Alas for today, yes, because that day is coming. And the locusts then were like an early warning. They were a wake-up call, a little hint, a little foreshadowing of what is almost here. If Jesus was going to come back and just do it right now, that would be right, that would be fair. And so every time that he doesn't, that is mercy. In fact, every time that he sends locusts instead... That is an act of kindness, delaying judgment and waking us up to be ready. But how can we be ready? Verse 11 has just said it, it's dreadful. And who can endure it? Nobody can endure it, surely. But then we're just given a, an amazingly wonderful glimmer of hope in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord. Aren't those beautiful words? 
after everything we've just been hearing, even now, even now, after all of this warning, it is still not too late. Return to the Lord. That's the call here. Return to the Lord, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That is how we can be ready and prepare. It's return to the Lord now. It has all gone wrong because they walked away. So come back again. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is a message for you. Turn to the Lord. If you used to call yourself a believer but you have been wandering off, either very obviously so or just sort of subtly so that other people might not realise, this is a message for you. Return to the Lord. And if you're going strong with God, you're turning to him uh, like this each day, well, that is a normal part of discipleship, isn't it? Returning to him day by day, moment by moment, recognizing how quickly we go off track. We want to keep on returning to him. We want to recommit to returning to the Lord. But what would that look like? Well, these things don't be put off by the fact that there's four quick headings. They're quick. We need to come to him prayerfully, sorrowfully, genuinely, and urgently. Let me go through each of those. We need to return to the Lord prayerfully. We need to pray. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, when everybody's gathered together, what should they do? It says, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. It is amazing, isn't it, that he's not saying, right, what you need to do is some big act of, no, just speak to him, talk to him, pray to him, cry out to him. That's what Joel himself does in verse 19. To you, Lord, I call. It's like he breaks off halfway through what he's saying, drops to his knees and says, I'm crying to you now, Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 17, we're given the words to say. It says, let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It's saying that we return to him, crying out for him to spare us, to forgive us, not to abandon us, but to keep his promises for his name's sake. Now that should give us massive confidence to pray like this. Because Joel's prayer is not based on the fact that, you know, do it for us because we're so great. No, he's saying, Lord, do it for your name's sake. If you don't rescue us when we call on you, what will that say about you, Lord? God has no desire to leave us in the lurch, have everybody looking on thinking, what happened to God? He's not much of a saviour, is he? And these people who are his people were crying out to him and he did nothing. Now, that is not what God is like. We come to him based on his character. So verse 13, uh, chapter 2, 13 says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's a famous summary, isn't it, of what God is like. It comes up lots of times in the Bible. It's in Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Jonah chapter 4, Nehemiah chapter 9, Psalm 86, 103, 104. It comes up, that exact phrase, over and over. So we would remember, what's God like? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That is who he is. 
and so cry out to him. And we can be even more sure of it this side of the cross, can't we? Where that judgment was inflicted on Jesus so it could be taken away from us. And so like Joel, we can take God's promises and character and present it back to God in prayer saying, spare us, Lord, because of who you are, because of what you've done and what you've said. We need to come before him prayerfully. Secondly, we return to him sorrowfully. What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 12. What's, their, what's the mood? It's all about fasting and weeping and mourning. Now, coming back to God does bring joy. But it doesn't start with joy. It starts with sorrow. I think sometimes we can want church to be joy, 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 joy. But very often coming back to God doesn't start there. It ends there. It needs to start with sadness about sin, regret for what we've done. We don't want to be those people who are like children who are saying sorry because we know we're meant to. We're not actually sorry. There's an element of sorrow to this. Which means we need to return genuinely. See that in verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. What's that about? Well, well, at that time, if you were in mourning, if a loved one had died, you would tear your clothes, you would rip, you would rend your garments, and you would wear sackcloth instead. But like people today might wear black instead. And the problem is, though, as with anything we do outwardly, sometimes people would just do the clothes ripping just for show. Oh, look at me, I must be so sorrowful. It's not actually making any difference to me, really, but I've done the outward thing. Look at me. I took the Lord's Supper. That must mean something. It doesn't actually mean anything to me, but I did the outward thing. Look at me. I'm in church. Well, yeah. Is there something going on in our hearts? And that's the thing God wants. That is what God is calling us to, to not just go through the motions, but mean it, to rend our hearts. God is not interested in just a, a performance He's not fooled by that. Now, if we are serious, returning to him will change our behavior. There may be big things that need to change. But the behavior change on its own is not what God wants. He wants our hearts. He wants us to return to him genuinely and to do it urgently urgent nothing is more important see in verse uh, 15 to 17 this is chapter 2 everybody is called to come from the highest to the lowest and there are no excuses it says gather the people consecrate the assembly bring together the elders gather the children those nursing at the breast so this is oldest to youngest if you are breastfeeding i'm sorry that is no excuse this is urgent and it goes on let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber so it is your wedding night. You are on your honeymoon. This is more important. At my old church in Nottingham, uh, we called our prayer meetings first priority meetings to show that crying out to God, relying on him together, was essential. Well, here Joel is calling for the mother of all first priority meetings, isn't he? Because returning to the Lord needs to be done 
urgently. Can I just say to you, if you know that things are not right between you and God, what on earth are you waiting for? Why are you putting it off? Even now, declares the Lord, even now, return to me with all your heart. It is not too late until it is too late. If that day was near in Joel's time, how much nearer is it today? Right now, there is time, so let's return to the Lord prayerfully, sorrowfully, genuinely, and urgently. Verse 14 says, who knows? He may relent, turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. We struggle to believe, don't we, that God could accept us back again. Who knows? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. That's not what who knows means here. When he says who knows, that's about not being presumptuous, as if it's no big deal. Of course he's going to forgive us, that's sort of his job, isn't it? No, that is not the right attitude. Instead, we come to him empty-handed, trusting that he will bless us. That in Jesus, he will give us what we need to offer back to him. Now next week, we're going to carry on with Joel and find out how God responded to these prayers. He responds well. But for now, let's reflect. This is written for a time when disaster had struck. What are we going to say? What are we going to do when that happens? What's your natural reaction? Do you tut at bad news? Do you grumble? Do you fear? Do you run further away from God? Or do you say with Joel, Alas, for this day, for the day of the Lord is near. And then return to him. Let's pray. Father, we are very aware of many difficult, hard things out there in the world, but also in our own lives, in our own hearts. And Lord, we, we don't presume to know why all of those things are happening. We don't want to say, oh, that must be because of this thing that they've done or this thing that I've done. But we do want to hear the warning, nonetheless, that there is a day coming when you will judge. And so we pray that you would help each one of us to return to you, to cry out to you because of the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Spare us, Lord. And we pray that our lives would show evidence that we are returning to you. In Jesus' name, amen.